0: I am your host, Ali A. Olomi. Thank you for joining me for a special episode of Head on History. Today, I'd like to cover the topic of Islamophobia and its history. I think this topic is definitely needed given the recent tragic events in New Zealand. For future listeners, on March 14th, 2019, a gunman walked in to two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, opening fire on Muslims who had gathered to pray. The terrorist attack left about 51 people dead and dozens more injured. A week has passed since then, and New Zealand has rallied around its relatively small Muslim community, with signs of solidarity, mourners from across the country joining together, and even the government has gone into overdrive, banning semi-auto weapons this week, and today held a national moment of silence uh, after the Adan, or call to prayer, was broadcasted throughout New Zealand. The terrorists seemed born out of the dredges of the internet, using trolling language, internet memes, and leaving behind a manifesto he called The Great Replacement, a title based on an older conspiracy theory that somehow the white population was being outbred and displaced by foreigners, namely Muslims and immigrants. Now this conspiracy theory has its roots in anti-semitism as well. The terrorist attack in Pittsburgh uh, earlier and the one in new zealand both have something in common one targeting a synagogue and the other targeting a mosque and that is because islamophobia and anti-semitism actually intersect with one another historically that's what i'd like to talk about today the roots of islamophobia and its intersection with other forms of bigotry Polemics against Muslims and Jews are not a new thing. We have medieval anti-Saracen writing and Judeophobic diatribe, or what's called Judeophobic by, by scholars, really anti-Jewish um polemics written by Christian theologians, etc. But both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia emerge within the context of colonialism and the imagining of the European nation-state within the 19th century. It's actually in the uh, intellectual tradition known as Orientalism that we first find the seeds of this. Now, to be clear, Islamophobia and Orientalism are not the same thing. Orientalism, as Edward Said defined it, is a representation of the Orient by the West, for the West, in the West. It is a sort of imagined geography that was constructed as an other to fashion the sort of self-identity of the so-called Orient. In other words, uh, or the self-identity of the West, I should say. If the Orient was religious, barbaric, and backwards, then the West was secular, modern, and progressive. Orientalism, in other words, is born out of fantasy, Desire, but it's always linked to empire, whereas Islamophobia has a slightly different history. However, both intersect in this particular moment, or we could argue that Islamophobia adopts some of the Orientalist framings, though it is a sort of different uh, experience altogether. Islamophobia is different, but it does draw this kind of Orientalist framework into its worldview, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. It's actually the famed Orientalist Ernest Renan who begins the process of racializing the difference between. the so-called Orient and the Occident, that would be uh, what would be the Middle East and East Asia, with Europe. In his book on Christianity, he begins to talk about an Aryan and Semitic mind. The Aryan mind, or the European mind, he links with reason, logic, and progress, while the Semitic mind is dogmatic and stunted. His thesis states that Jesus Arianizes Judaism, so there's a sort of purification of Judaism in order to create Christianity. Christianity, therefore, becomes this sort of purified version of of Judaism. So deeply offensive, but really in line with the thinking of the 19th century. The relationship between the Arian Jesus and Semitic Judaism becomes a hotbed of religious bigotry in the 19th and 20th century. He includes in the Semitic mind both Jews and Muslims, Muslims, who he views as predominantly uh, African or Arab. Uh, in fact, on March 29th, 1883, Ernest Renan delivers a series of lectures on the Orient entitled Islam and Science. In it, he states, all who have been to the Orient or Africa are struck by what is the inevitably narrow-mindedness of the true believer, of a kind of iron ring around his head, making it absolutely closed to science, incapable of learning anything or opening it itself up to any new idea so here we see very clearly you know he, he believes that the orient is africa so he does racialize it that that the semitic mind is born in africa and in the orient now he contrasts this with the Aryan mind when he states the muslim has the deepest contempt for education for science and all that which constitutes the european spirit in other words education and science are the european spirit and muslims have uh, contempt for it contemporaneously, 1825 or so, Bory de Saint Vincent, he writes an article on man, in other words, defining man, literally for a dictionary of natural science, where he designates the Arab, categorize it as a separate species from the European and categorize it as quote unquote Semitic. In other words, what we see is not just a series of polemics written by Ernest Renon, but an attempt by the scientific community to categorize different. This is a codification of so-called Semitic people, here defined as Muslim and Jews, as uniquely different from Europeans on account of their inherent clinging to quote-unquote superstition and dogmatism. Categorizing difference, along with what was perceived to be sort of scientific line, produces taxonomies of race, and these are intimately tied to the nation state. Ernest Renan isn't just writing about Christianity; he writes a book called *What Is a Nation*, and he tries to lay out the groundwork for the nation state, a new political and state organization that diverged from the sort of pre-modern multi-ethnic empires. It reorders the it reorders the political imagined community along ethnic or racial lines. In other words, France for the French, Germany for the Germans, and so on and so forth. Now, some of this language may be familiar to scholars of Nazism, especially if you've read Hitler's prophecy, the speech he kind of gives. But it's also really at the heart of much of the early conceptions of the nation-state. This isn't something that's unique to Hitlerism or Nazism, but rather at the very heart of the nation state as it emerges in Europe. And the Jewish community is often the one that faces the brunt of this of the racialized policies uh, of who could and couldn't be a citizen. In other words, the codification of who gets to be a citizen and who, and who doesn't get to be a citizen targets the Jewish community more than any other community. And that's because the Muslim community was relatively small and relatively new, whereas the Jewish community community had lived in europe in a diaspora for centuries now despite that long history they've been there for centuries on end the racialization or ethnic character of some of the arguments in the nation state delineate between the so-called European and the so-called Jew. It's really a fictitious line created through the imagine of a racial categories like like Aryan or Semitic, and that's the key here. This was all fantasy under the guise of science, but in the service of the state. The reality was that the Jewish community had lived in Europe as long as any other group had lived there. There was as quote-unquote European, whatever that means, as any other group, but this sort of racialization codifies uh, them as an other. The response to the Muslims was a uh, less exclusionary in the kind of earliest Orientalist discourses, and that's partly because Orientalism was shaped by its colonial aspirations. Uh, Reynon goes on to talk about Muslims as the so-called first victims of Islam. Uh, there was an overt civilizing mission, in other words, the desire to save the Orient from itself. From the 19th to the 20th century, then Muslims faced the brunt of the colonial violence, the colonization of Egypt and North Africa. India, and so on and so forth, while Jews in Europe faced state violence and exclusion, so both of their experiences are entangled in the state's creation of the other. This is the you know most obviously seen later in the in the or 20th century in the sort of Nazi agenda and the, and the eventual Holocaust. But it starts quite earlier than that. Nazism doesn't emerge out of nowhere. And indeed, much of the sort of anti-Semitic language used early on in Hitler's speeches was not cons- particularly um, offensive to most Europeans. It was his kind of imperialism that they re- rejected, not the fact that he was this outright anti-Semite. And that's because anti-Semitism was very prevalent in Europe at the time, at this moment in which there was a conceptualization of who can and who cannot be part of the nation state, and Jews often faced the brunt of the kind of exclusionary uh, practices. In other words, the original kind of great replacement theory was predominantly anti-Semitic in its origins, and taking the sort of pseudo-scientific claims of Orientalism within the context of the nation state, and arguing that Jews were somehow replacing quote-unquote native populations, again, ignoring the fact that Jews have been living in Europe for centuries and were as European as anyone else. But there was this this constant refrain of, oh, well, Jews are taking jobs away from Germans or Jews are taking away, you know, uh, access to universities from, from French and so on and so forth. Now, it isn't really until the Cold War that we start to see the Great Replacement theories start to be directed towards Muslims. So for much of the 20th century, this kind of Orientalist framing of the other, the the anti-Semitism, was all really directed towards one community. Islamophobia does not become a major prevailing practice until relatively recently. Even earlier laws that restricted Muslim immigration did so along the lines of kind of broader anti-immigrant policies. The Cold War and its aftermath brought the Middle East front and center as the battleground of international struggles. And that is what we see as the beginnings of the Great Replacement Theory and Islamophobia as a central policy feature in uh, so-called Western countries. And it's really a result of the fact that these Muslim-majority countries become the chief battlefield between two major uh, imperial forces, the Soviet Union and the United States. And as a result of this kind of ongoing conflict, you have an increase in migration from those Muslim-majority countries. The Cold War frames itself as a sort of clash of ideologies. And that introduces us to the framework of what the famed scholar, African historian, and scholar, Mamdani Called the good Muslim, bad Muslim framework. This is the true root. Of Islamophobia. While drawing upon kind of these early Orientalist framings, Islamophobia has less to do with conceptions of the nation state or even civilizing missions, though to be clear, we certainly still get some remnants of those, especially for justifying the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. But the discourse of Islamophobia fixates on Islam as an ideological other in the same way that communism was in the Cold War. Islam is deemed as foreign. Again, despite the fact that it was in america from the very get-go and we have founding fathers writing about Mohammedanism and so on and so forth Islam is seen as inherently incompatible with uh, the United States or its native countries. You often see this kind of language in the discussions of Sharia versus Constitution. Sharia and the Constitution are incompatible. So there's this language that these two ideologies of even different lifestyles and civilizations that just could not merge. And also that, uh, that Muslims are inherently subversive. See this sort of discourse about Muslims invading and infiltrating various organizations organization. And like communism in the United States, Islamophobia is bolstered by a massive security apparatus that gives us the USA Patriot Act post 9-11, but it's also part of a manufactured process. In other words, there's an industry behind it. Khaled Bedoun's work on Islamophobia here is very illustrative, as well as uh, the uh, article or journal chapter written uh, by the American Center for Progress called Fear Inc., which both pinned point a massive and lucrative industry that has grown up around depicting Muslims as a national security threat only days before the kind of New Zealand shooting Jean Perot the uh, judge Jean Perot the uh, Fox News commentator was talking about Ilhan Omar as a couldn't possibly be loyal to America having dual loyalties and whatnot and compare that to earlier Michelle Bachmann demanding investigations of all Muslims for quote unquote anti American activity. I mean, that should ring bells for anyone who studied McCarthyism. So, what you see on one hand is a security apparatus, what Michelle Bachmann has tried, tried to do, and a mil- media industry, what Je- uh, Judge Jean Perrault was doing, working together. Security apparatus on one hand, media industry on the other hand, both work together to produce Islamophobia. Now, we still see hints of the older orientalist framing take for example Brett Stevens, famous New York Times op I should say infamous the man's an idiot he wrote he wrote this a, a bit about the disease of the Arab mind I mean the dude is writing in the New York Times the paper of record for the United States of America and he's writing as if he plagiarized Ernest Renan the disease of the Arab mind the, the, the orientalist mind is ringed with an iron ring I mean it's the same discourse of course he continues to enjoy a very lucrative position. Or take Laura Bush's call to save Afghan women as justification for the Afghan war. The Muslim is the first victim of Islam. It's Ernest Renan, right? That's what he said. And you have, or, or, you know, Laura Bush saying the same thing. So amongst the intellectuals, sort of the so-called elites or the ideologues, uh, you still see the Orientalist framing. But you you have a deeper Islamophobia that is stirred up by the uh, media and the security apparatus. The Orientalist framing is how the world is understood. There is a so-called West, and this West is in conflict with the Islamic world, as uh, Samuel Huntington wrote in his Clash of Civilizations. It's Orientalism. But Islamophobia is the distinct framing of Muslims as either good or good or bad that emerges out of the Cold War era. So this is why when we say Islamophobia and Orientalism aren't the same, there is a distinct difference here and that's what this distinct difference is. And that's why Islamophobia is broadly tolerated in the United States and even in other European countries so long as it doesn't take on its sort of vulgar manifestations. The disease of the Arab mind is still read by people and Bret Stevens still has his job. You can talk about good Muslims and bad Muslims, moderates and infiltrators. The issue. Becomes whether violence towards Muslims is state sanctioned or not. In the days following the New Zealand shooting, many nations were horrified and many decried his hateful rhetoric and his violence. But few have taken a hard look at their own frameworks of understanding the world. This terrible, this, this terrorist, as horrible as he was, was a product of our own discourse. Islamophobia and antisemitism are part of the very fabric of much of our understanding of the world, and it's only when we admit that can we start to change the discourse. Only when we can admit that the nation state has had part of its discourse, the othering of peoples, the Jewish community, in Europe. Only when we start to admit that in the post-Cold War moment, we shifted our uh, suspicions away from the Soviet Union and onto Islam as a sort of civilizational threat to liberal democracy. It's not communists we need to worry about, it's Islamists, it's jihadists. And so you have moderate Muslims, oh they're just peaceful, they're doing their own thing. And then you have Islamists who are a threat to our way of life. Now, all of this simplifies complex histories, and it has a convenient way of ignoring the sort of colonial violence, the uh, linked imperialism, or the discourse about uh, intervention, or how much of this discourse, much of this framing, is driven by an industry that seeks to perpetuate a forever war. It ignores the sort of military-industrial complex behind it. It ignores that these are uh, designated nations that are driven by politics and policy, not by analysis and understanding. These aren't born out of a of, out of historical understanding of the relationship of Islam and Judaism with Europe or the and, and America. Rather, they're driven by policy. They're driven by politicians with agendas, in the same way that Ernest Renan's Orientalism was driven within the context of both the nation-state and colonialism. And it's time to, for us to kind of confront this history, to recognize how Islam phobia and anti-semitism intersect in orientalism how they then manifest and take on their own trajectories Uh, anti-semitism becoming part of the discourse of the nation-states within Europe but also within the United States while Islamophobia emerging in the post Cold War moment as the new big bad uh, with you know to help justify the billions of dollars we spend on a security apparatus it's not communists and the Red Scare we need to hunt for it's now secret jihadists we have to hunt for, and that's not unique to Democrat or Republican, that's not unique to right or left, but part of a broader framing, anyone who's anyone, anyone who has any sense, you know, pay attention to the Democratic debates that are coming up, and notice how many of them will emphasize national security as a cornerstone. Very few of them will talk about how our discourse about Islamophobia is producing the type of violence that we're seeing, that our discourse on anti-Semitism, that our anti-immigrant rhetoric, that our uh, our xenophobia is producing things like the Pittsburgh shooter or the New Zealand shooter. These terrorist attacks are not isolated incidents, but the extreme manifestation of a particular understanding of the world that is at the heart of much of our media framing Mm -hmm. and our politics. So pay attention to those discourses. Anyways, that's all for now. It's a very quick introduction into the history of Islamophobia, and its connections to anti-Semitism and Orientalism. Hopefully this was useful to you and you're able to kind of see a little bit more of this history. Um, This was a special episode. We'll be back with our regular season in a few weeks and we may have a couple more specials along the way as we develop the history of Islamophobia and other um, kind of topics uh, over the course of several weeks. I'm actually thinking of writing up this particular bit and publishing it, so keep an eye out for that and you can do so by following me on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I both on Instagram and Twitter. Anyway, that's all for now. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.